The Lord be with you. And welcome to the worship service of Holy Trinity Anglican in Madison, Mississippi. It is a joy to be called into the life of God and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our prayer is that our hearts and minds are open to receive the Lord. By His Spirit, through His sacraments, and in the hearing of His Word, we are confident the Lord will meet us. So won't you join us? We're praying that you will. Each gospel is unique. The fact that we have four gospels instead of just one shows that each is bringing something different to the table. They do share much in common, but each gospel zooms in and focuses on different events and places. One may provide a story or a parable, the others without. And this isn't by accident. The content, the delivery, the pacing of each gospel, they're all purposeful. Even the way each gospel begins gives us very valuable information. They help us understand the direction and the theme of what's to follow. Think about how each gospel opens. Matthew starts with a genealogy. A genealogy that details the lineage of Jesus. But Matthew's genealogy isn't just an ordinary family tree that shows the last five or six generations. No. Matthew's genealogy begins 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. Matthew begins with Abraham. And he follows the familial strand that leads all the way down to the Messiah. Matthew is carefully and methodically laying out a case for us. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew is underlining and substantiating the Jewishness of Jesus. What about Luke? Well, it doesn't begin with the Jewish pedigree of Jesus. No, Luke begins by focusing on the story of Jesus' birth. And Luke details the birth of Jesus like you know a gospel. Luke is the only gospel that records Gabriel announcing John's birth, or Gabriel's visit to Mary. Luke's the only one that tells us of Mary's visit to Elizabeth, the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. The shepherd's visit and the circumcision of Jesus are only provided by Luke. Luke begins with a laser focus on the birth narrative, and in doing so, he shows us that the Messiah was born just like you and I. That he came into this broken world just like us. Luke is making a case for the real humanity of Jesus. What about John? But John does something different. He doesn't begin with the same things Matthew and Luke does. John's gospel begins with what? In the beginning. John doesn't start with Abraham's genealogy like Matthew or the birth narrative like Luke. John goes back further than we can imagine. John starts with God before the universe existed. John gives us a glimpse into the divine life, a glimpse into the triune God's inner being, the relationship of Father and of Son and Spirit. And then John moves from there and tells us that the Word who was with God and who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. John is carefully laid out a case. Substantiating the claim. Jesus isn't just some human guru with a new teaching. No. The Word made flesh is truly God. And God in the flesh is dwelling with us. 
Matthew starts with the Jewishness of Jesus. God had kept his word to Abraham and brought the Messiah into this world from his line. Luke shows us that this promised Messiah is a detached from this broken world. Jesus was born into this world and lived in this world and died in this world, just as you and I do. And John, he shows that the promised Messiah of Abraham's line, who identifies with us, who lives in this broken world with us, has the power to set it straight. John substantiates the real divinity of Jesus. Each gospel is giving us a part of the story, with no one piece being sufficient to tell the whole story on its own. Each gospel is necessary in understanding the most beautifully important human to ever walk the earth. And so, each gospel begins the way that it does on purpose. So what about Mark? How does Mark start? Well, if I were to just use one word, it would be the word frenzy. The pacing, the rhythm of Mark's crazy fast. The sense of urgency in how Mark writes his tempo. The other Gospels aren't like this. Fun fact, the word immediate or immediately appears in Mark 40 times. That's twice as much as any other Gospel. Mark is constantly pushing the story ahead, always moving you forward. I try to think of a picture to describe this, and the one that comes to mind is this. <coughs> Who remembers the, the Maxwell High Fidelity commercial from the 80s? Anybody? Alright, so it's, it's the one where the guy's sitting in the chair. You can it. It's the one where the guy's sitting in the chair like his butler or something. Puts the set tape in, he hits play, and then the music starts and his hair and his tie and his shirt. And he has a little glass of wine that starts to fall off. They're all being pushed back by this huge sound. Well, that's a picture of Mark's gospel. He doesn't ease you into the story. Mark pushes the pedal to the floor and doesn't let up for 16 chapters. So what's Mark's deal? Why does he move so quickly? Well, like the other Gospels, Mark has a very good reason for beginning the way that he does. Like the other Gospels, Mark is offering a unique picture of the Messiah, a piece of the story. But what? What is Mark doing? What is Mark trying to show us about Jesus? Well, we're going to answer that question. We can't begin with our gospel. But then chapter 4. So, in what is slowly becoming typical fashion of Deacon Charles when he preaches, we're not going to start with our gospel. We're going to start way before chapter 1. Now, I promise to do my best to connect the dots along the way. And I hope that as we approach and then enter our gospel text, our eyes will be open. Our minds would be awake to what Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to show us about Jesus. So if you haven't already, open Bibles to the first chapter of Mark. <clears throat> Let's start by looking at the first 11 verses of Mark. Verse 1 is Mark's thesis statement. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verses 2 and 3 give us a quick reminder of a 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah. In verse 4, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. John the Baptist enters the story. Verses 5 through 8 show John working. He's baptizing, calling people to repentance. He's making ready the way of the Lord. In 
by the time you reach verse 9 of chapter 1, Jesus is on the scene. By verse 11, Jesus is baptized by John. The Spirit descends upon Jesus, and the Father confirms that the Son has pleased Him. So far, Mark's beginning is about as good as you can get. I mean, you've got cousins in ministry together, people who are getting and turning to the Lord. Mass baptisms are taking place, prophecies being fulfilled. The Spirit's descending, the Father is pleased. Things couldn't be better. But in verse 12, this positive tone of Mark's narrative changes. The story fits. The plot of the story, the tone of the story are now markedly different. And this plot change is not minor, and it's certainly not temporary. Verse 12 brings about a shift in the story that lasts for the next 15 chapters. In verse 12, the Spirit leads Jesus into a beast-filled wilderness alone. Verse 13, Satan tempts Jesus for 40 days. Verse 14, John the Baptist is arrested and imprisoned and awaits execution. His death is assured and imminent. Things have changed quickly. Why? Why the sudden shift? I mean, why is Jesus in the wilderness again? Why is Satan tempting? What did John do? Why, I mean, why was he arrested? Well, Mark doesn't say. Explanation of these questions aren't on Mark's agenda, apparently. Not because he thinks they're not important. No. Mark has a reason, a purpose for moving past these details. Mark is pressing forward in order to frame for us his picture of the Messiah. Look at 14. What does it say happens right after John is taken into prison? Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel. And what does it say is at hand in verse 15? The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus then calls the people to repent and believe, to join his kingdom. And in verse 16, we see that Jesus isn't just waiting around for volunteers. What does he begin doing in verse 16? He begins calling disciples. Just as Matthew and Luke and John began their gospel in distinctive ways, each painting for us a unique picture of the Messiah, each giving us replaceable truths about Jesus, so too is Mark. So what is Mark framing for us? What does Mark's picture of the Messiah give us? Mark shows us that the Messiah isn't passive in the face of evil. He'll go into the wilderness and face the devil himself. As evil swirls around him, he doesn't stand still. You arrest his cousin and then behead him, and he'll recruit 12 more to continue to work. Mark shows us a Messiah that is immediately and unceasingly confronting evil. A Messiah that doesn't use misdirection, but a Messiah that engages the enemy in a full frontal assault and doesn't let up for 15 chapters. Mark's gospel shows us that Jesus confronts and defeats evil in a fallen world. A quick glance through the first chapter shows this. Everywhere Jesus goes after verse 11, He's involved in some battle with evil. In verse 12, he's in the wilderness. The world created by Jesus was fertile and bountiful, but the fallen world isn't like that. It had dry, uninhabited places, full of wild beasts. Mark shows us that this is the exact kind of place Jesus would go, that he would inhabit. 
And he would soon redeem this kind of place as well. And in verse 13, Jesus confronts Satan in the wilderness. In verse 21, Jesus casts demons out of a man in the synagogue. In verse 30, Jesus heals Peter's mother. The Messiah is moving from place to place, person to person, and is confronting and undoing evil. And the people of Pernum, they see it. Verse 32 says, they began bringing to him all who were sick and demons possessed. The whole town was gathering at the door of Jesus. And Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons all night long. In verse 38, Jesus travels to the other towns doing the exact same thing. He's casting out demons. He's healing lepers all over Galilee. As chapter 1 closes, we read these words. And they were coming to him from everywhere. Jesus was on a roll. Evil was on his heels. If this were a boxing match at the end of the first round, the other guys on the <coughs> Jesus is killing it right here. Chapter 2 starts out with much of the same. Huge throngs of people streaming to Jesus with the sick and the infirmed. And it's here where Jesus heals the paralytic, the man who was lowered through the roof. But this time, Jesus does something different. When he heals this man, he tells him that your sins are forgiven. And it's at this point that a few new characters in the story. And they aren't pleased with Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees are now on the scene. And what's tragic about this is that they enter as adversaries of Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees, the keepers of the law, the steward of Yahweh's word, now stand in opposition to Yahweh himself. They fight against Jesus and challenge him every chance they get. In verse 16, we see that Jesus is still going into the world's broken places. He eats with tax collectors and other assorted sinners. The Pharisees respond to him by questioning his integrity. But a decent man would conserve himself with the likes of these people. The Pharisees question his temperance in verse 18. Aren't you fasting like everyone else? And in the closing of chapter 2, they question Jesus' obedience to the law because he's picking grain in the Sabbath. Now, Jesus rebuffs all their accusations. He dismantles every single one of their arguments. And you would think after losing encounter, after encounter with Jesus, the Pharisees might reconsider their position. But they don't. As chapter 3 begins, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees now draw a line in the sand. Verse 6 of chapter 3 says this, And the Pharisees went out immediately and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees and their allies are now fully engaged in the fight. But they join the fight not with, but against Jesus. As chapter 3 closes, Jesus returns home. Verse 31 shows that his friends and family hear that he's in town, and they go look for him. But they look for him in order to silence him. They want to quiet Jesus down. And his family with all this crazy talk of being inside. They say that he's lost his mind. Jesus, the most sane human who have ever lived, is accused by his family of insanity. As if that's not bad enough, it gets worse. In 
verse 22, the scribes say that Jesus' remarkable power to cast out demons and heal diseases comes from Satan. The scribes accuse Jesus, the living, breathing God, of being a follower of Satan. The immense tragedy of this moment, the sheer betrayal that is taking place here, can't be overstated. Just a few chapters ago, Jesus was confronting Satan and casting out demons and healing more debilitating diseases. His people were streaming to him, flocking to see him. Good was pushing back the tide of evil in ways that they had never seen. And now, those who were supposed to know Jesus, who were supposed to know Yahweh and his law, supposed to join him in his fight against evil, seek to kill Jesus because they recognize him as the evil. So how does Jesus respond to this? Chapter 4 begins with an undaunted Jesus. He's teaching still. This time it's a whole bunch of people out of sea. And Jesus tells them four different parables. The parable of the soils, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the seed which grows, mustard seed. All of them are illustrating the struggle of some struggle of seeds in various soils, lasted in other bushels. Jesus is showing those around him what he sees. Jesus exposes those who have unfertile, unready hearts. He warns those who seek to hide a lamp in the midst of darkness. And he counsels those who can't perceive how a seed as small and insignificant as the mustard seed could ever produce something substantial. Jesus for 34 verses of Mark 4, is pouring out his heart to those who are fighting against him, warning them, illustrating for them that he and the kingdom that he brings are permanent fixtures in this world. And anyone not found in him, anyone not in his kingdom, they're on the wrong side. The scribes, the Pharisees, even the family of Jesus, doubt but there are those who follow Jesus and worship Him as the Messiah. Each side is making their allegiances plain. Each side is clearly stating who they think Jesus is. So, who are the disciples what fit in all this? What hearts do they have? What has Mark given to us so far that will allow us to answer that question? Well, practically nothing. With the exception Chapter 1, verse 37, where Peter says, Everyone's looking for you. The disciples are not reported saying anything yet. They aren't reported having any conversation. That Jesus calls them. They glean grain with Jesus. They get boats for Jesus to preach in. They're sent out by Jesus. But we haven't heard them speak. We haven't seen their hearts in action. We don't know their allegiances yet. Well, we don't know their allegiances until we reach our gospel section. In Mark 4, 35 through 41, the disciples enter the conversation for the very first time. And in crystal clear fashion, the disciples show their hearts, their opinions of Jesus. And you begin to see what allegiances the disciples may have in the struggle of his people. And, spoiler alert, it's not a good show. But let's look at the other. Starting in verse 35. On that day, 
said, let's go over to the other side. So leaving the crowd, they took him along with him to the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? You still have no faith. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey? So, Jesus and the disciples, along with several other boats, filled with others, wherever they are, set sail across the sea. Now we have to remember, the Israelites aren't a seafaring people, right? How many of you know stories about the Jewish Navy? <coughs> not a lot. Most of the time the sea is brought up, it's not good for the Jews. Whether it's Jonah being tossed into the ocean, coming through the Red Sea, escaping Pharaoh's army, the beast rising out of the sea in Daniel, most of the time the sea is mentioned, things get real dicey for the Jews. But these disciples, they're different. They're fishermen. They knew the sea. They'd grown up in boats, spent day after day fishing these waters. They were confident, capable. So as the storm clouds gathered and approached, no big deal. We've been through storms before. We can handle ourselves. No need to wake up a land-loving carpenter to go there to sleep, right? storm was a bit more than they anticipated. The waves began crashing over the side of them. The ship began taking on water and the three, the sea threatened to claim them. Their confidence, their hubris left them and then they cried out to Jesus. And here the disciples end the conversation. Over the sound of the storm, the disciples shout out a question to Jesus. But it's one of those questions that aren't really questions at all. Their question to Jesus was really an accusation. The very first time we see the disciples involved in a conversation with Jesus, the first glimpse we have into how they view Jesus, what they think about Jesus, they accuse him of not caring, of being unconcerned that they are perishing. If there was one thing you would have thought the disciples knew by this part of the story, it would be that Jesus cared deeply for those people who suffered. That Jesus acted on behalf of those who were perishing. And he would never abandon anyone who was being assaulted by evil. But they hadn't learned this. And even at Mark's fast pace, it's four more chapters before the disciples sound like they even kind of get it. So Jesus, sleeping on a wet cushion, wakes up to his disciples questioning his character in a storm threatening to drown him. And what does he say here? What words does Jesus use right here? Peace, be still, is what almost all the translations say, right? I don't usually bring out Greek words and definitions and sermons. Most times it seems a little counterproductive to me. But in this case, I think I have to. What our English translations report is peace, be still, it lacks the tone and the attitude in the Greek text. I checked with men much smarter than I to make sure 
sure that I understood exactly what was being said here. And they all agree. Jesus' words here for peace be still are more akin to this. Sit down and shut up. It has that kind of force to it. Now Jesus isn't being crude or hot-tempered here. Jesus is making sure everyone understands whether they be disciples or demons or seagulls, this isn't playtime. This is a fight. And Jesus means to win it. His tenacity, his confidence, his goodness, his overwhelming power had been on display before, but not like this. And the disciples were all struck by it. Jesus turns to them, no doubt their jaws hanging open, and he asks them, What? Why are you so afraid? How is it that you have been afraid? I don't know about you, but it seems like the disciples had a pretty good reason to be afraid right there. I mean, the ship was going to sink. It didn't just look like it was going to sink. It was about to go down. So Jesus is telling them that fear in the midst of the life-threatening storm is bad. Is that, is that what he's saying? And by extension, does that mean that when some tragedy is threatening me or you, that I can't be afraid if I love Jesus? Well, yes and no. First things first. First. Jesus isn't talking about having legitimate fear. A fear a child has when it thunders at night is legitimate fear. No parent who chastise their child for being afraid in a storm. Oh, a parent would comfort him. You've all heard it. Come on, get in our bed. You're all right. And then the parent is paid the ultimate compliment when the child falls asleep right beside them. No longer afraid of the thunder. Totally unconcerned with the storm because they know they're safe with their parent. This isn't the kind of fear that Jesus is talking about. The fear that Jesus felt the night before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. The fear he felt as he asked his father if this cup could pass from him. This is not the fear Jesus is talking about when he asked the disciples why they're afraid. Jesus is not asking his disciples, not asking us to act as if nothing phases us. To act as if the death of someone we love doesn't crush our hearts. To act as if a terminal diagnosis doesn't matter. Of course not. Jesus knows full well what loss and fear feel like. He's not telling us we can't feel those things. So what's he talking about when he asks the disciples why they're afraid? Well, Seems I'm going to do pretentious Greek thing again, so I, I apologize. But there's two main Greek words that can be translated as fear. The word for legitimate fear in the New Testament is phobos. We get a word phobia. That's the kind of acceptable fear you can have, the kind of acceptable fear that we've been talking about. But that isn't the Greek word Jesus uses when he's questioning the disciples. The word Jesus uses is deloi, and deloi is always a negative term in the New Testament. You'll see it translated faint-hearted or cowardly. And while we're all wrapped up in the Greek words, the word translated faith, pistis, is just, isn't just about mental belief. It also means trust, dependency, the kind of trust that you see in a husband and a wife, the kind of trust they place in one another, the kind of trust that assumes faithfulness rather than fidelity. You see, it wasn't that the disciples were just phobos, a 
afraid like a kid in a thunderstorm. No, the disciples were daylight, cowards who didn't pistis, trust Jesus. So when Jesus looks at them and says, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Jesus is asking them, why didn't you come to me sooner? Why would you have to say, I don't care about you? Why would you think I would just let evil take you from me? Don't you trust me? Don't you know who I am? Because you should by now. But the last verse of chapter 4 makes it very clear. They don't know who Jesus is yet. Verse 41. Then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. The disciples are missing it. When Jesus saves them from the sea, from a raging, angry storm which threatens to kill them all, Jesus is demonstrating for them everything he said in the parables. This is what the kingdom of God looks like in action. A Messiah in the midst of that which needs redeeming. That which threatens your destruction. He's in the midst of the wilderness. In the midst of a stormy sea. At the bedside of a sick mother. And even in the front of a fishing boat. Full of hard-hearted disciples. Jesus is facing evil and dysfunction everywhere it exists. Whether it be in the world or in our hearts. And he's come for nothing less than this. Matthew shows us that God had kept his word and that the Messiah, the son of Abraham, is here. Luke shows us that the promised Messiah is every bit as human as we. John, that the Jesus, that Jesus is every bit divine as the Father. And Mark, Mark shows us what this promised human God Messiah does in the midst of a broken world. He confronts evil and he defeats it. He finds corruption and exposes it. He's setting all things straight, making all things new. He wants to do this in the world, in these doubting, cowardly disciples. And he wants to do this in me and in you. So what's it take? What do you need to do to be with Jesus, to side with Jesus in his fight against you? Well, don't be afraid. Sometimes things are scary. But in the midst of your fear, you trust Him. You trust that He sees you and He knows you and He's not going to let you perish. You trust Him. You trust that He loves you. And when you trust Him, you find that the storms won't overtake you. The crashing waves of your life when they meet in the boat aren't going to drown you. Disease won't have the final say over you. Death itself and every power of hell is rendered helpless. Evil does not claim those claimed by the Messiah, those who trust and know Jesus. But maybe you're like the disciples. You don't have everything sorted out about Jesus. You don't know him all that well. Maybe you don't trust him that much. Like the disciples, you're fairly confident in your ability to deal with what's coming. You're not quite ready to say that you need help. Okay. Would you recognize just one thing? Consider recognizing just one thing. Jesus is in the boat with you. Jesus is in the boat with you because he wants you. He wants you, all of your brokenness, to trust him, to call out to him. Even if your cry is 
feeble and misguided, Jesus will answer. He came here for you. You were made for nothing less than Him. And nothing less than Him will ever satisfy you. Praise Jesus that He confronts and defeats evil. That in dying He destroys death. And that in the resurrection He offers us life by His Spirit. Glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. He is with us. He is for us. Amen. Amen. Holy Trinity Anglican is a faith family that seeks to encounter and share the Holy Trinity through worship, community, and mission. We're located at 432 Bozeman Road in Madison, Mississippi, and we invite you to join us each Sunday at 10 a.m. for worship. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.